seaweed and gravel never grow up weirdos. Welcome back, and we are here today with uh, Dave Haynes. He is a uh, sound guy and um, musician and local guy here, and is involved with all kinds of um, bands and touring and has a, uh, a lot of uh, history in music, and uh, just wanted to talk to him today about his inspiration and where he, where he gets it, what drives him, what, uh, what he's doing and what he's all about. So welcome. Thank you. So, uh, what brought you to this place of, uh, touring with all these huge bands and, uh, and being the, uh, sound master that you are, let's, I guess, explain a little bit what you, what you, what you do. Uh, what I do. Well, I, I got tangled up with, um, black eyed peas when I was younger and toured with tour the world with them. 97 countries I've been to, 98 countries I've been to now, and um, John Legend, and I'm with Alessia Cara now, and Atlantis Morissette I work for, I don't know, a bunch of different artists. But uh, I should start at the beginning, because um, a lot of people ask that, uh, how did this, how to get tangled up in this, how did I get you know down this road? And uh, I grew up in Del Mar, and um, my, both my parents are classical musicians, not professionally but uh they played in orchestras and symphonies since i can remember that was our babysitter they would take us to rehearsal and me and my sister would run around under the timpanis and everything listening to beethoven and mozart and learning all this stuff by osmosis and thankfully my parents didn't push music on me and my sister too much like a lot of parents can um but you're just I, around it I, we were around it and i remember uh, taking up clarinet in fourth grade and not being great at it, uh, you know, just a thing to do. I don't know. And then my mom kept catching me uh, noodling around on the piano as I got a little older. Uh, and uh, but she and she taught flute at, at the house. She she taught. Uh, she had flute students come over all the time, and um, and she'd often catch me playing on the piano. And one day she said, um, "Look, if you if you you're getting decent at." at that playing by ear if you're interested I'll, I'll find you a teacher she didn't want to teach me she could play piano but she didn't want to she kind of knew that that might be weird right, she right. said she said if you want i could find you a teacher who um is will will um not start you at the beginning won't be condescending and, and will like take you at an intermediate level someone that um because my parents were always good about that with me and my sister they could tell that we're kind of self-learners and don't like to be uh, bossed around too much on her <laughs> like stubborn and whatever right. yeah, so they were told what to they do, were you go the opposite yeah way. they were so. my parents were great at um working with our independent natures i guess right mm. and 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 encouraging us to be self-learners but with some extra help and so uh, i got a piano teacher for a little while but i was never that disciplined as a kid so um i learned some stuff from her some oscar peterson and jazz and interesting like jazz piano nice. and built some foundation there so i, I started on clarinet and, uh, you know piano kind of like oh a great kind of tool but it wasn't it didn't speak to me mm. and then it gets, it gets confusing in here because i uh, what happened um puberty uh, yeah puberty <laughs> but my mom my mom started working at an animal hospital in solana beach and uh and one of the vet techs was in a band and she goes oh um you're in a band my son is really interested in i, I guess i'd already expressed an interest in audio and recording oh yeah because I, I was working for the not working for um my mom was playing piano at a lot of our school events and um somehow i was 
was doing audio already by like sixth or seventh grade at our school events. So she asked this guy uh, at the animal hospital, you're in a band and um, do you think you could talk to my son and like to help direct him? And he goes, oh, hell yeah. Tell him to come. I'll pick him up and take him to band practice and he can, I'll teach him how to use our Nagra. It's a film recording, you know, device that he's done films. Um, And we had like shotgun mics. They had all this film equipment from UCLA from their friend to record their stuff. So he started showing me how to use a mixer and all this different stuff. And, um, and originally the, their plan was just to teach me how to record and or possibly mix their live shows at 14 or whatever it was. Oh, wow. yeah. I was so tall. I was 5'10 already at 14. They thought I was a senior in high school. They said, <laughs> when you met me and I was 14. <laughs> and um, to speed up the story, I started hanging with them and going to these uh, the cactus stock was this big event out here for years, like our little Coachella and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember, um, thinking oh guitar what is this this is way more interesting than clarinet or piano i'd never really been around guitars that much and i'm left-handed so i the singer was left-handed let me um taught me paint it black stones was the first song i ever learned on guitar left-handed and then um and i and i was hooked already i was like oh this is this is where it's at but i didn't have the money to get a guitar so my mom i remember again caught me in the garage with a (laughs) i had a kleenex box in the garage with rubber bands around it and I was going, dung, 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 like experiment, like trying to understand this thing, right? And she's like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to build a guitar. And she, she said, we'll get you a guitar if, if that's actually, <laughs> if you'll actually commit to it. Because, you know, sure. and, uh, yeah, and so we go to Pacific Beach and go to this guy's place who has all these guitars. And, uh, and he convinces me, he said, I know you're left-handed, but I have two left-handed guitars here. I have a hundred right-handed guitars. He goes, will you at least try to play right-handed because you'll thank me later and long story short i did and i'm i am glad um mm. i shattered every bone, bone in my left arm when i was 10 and i think that's why i'm more ambidextrous than some people than mm. i would be because mm. i was forced to use my right hand uh when i was 10 so anyway i i learned to play right-handed and i don't regret it i don't think i would have been hendrix her um paul mccartney left-handed mm-hmm. and i think it's good for your brain too to be ambidextrous they say it, it yeah, balances so. your brain out, um, mm-hmm. the hemispheres. So anyway, that's how I got into guitar and eventually into this band because the next thing I know, uh, I'm writing songs with the singer and guitarist um, somehow. Like I just I just understood music and I'm writing parts and we're recording my parts. And next thing I know, they said, well, there's more parts here than we can play. I guess you're in the band now. You got to be <laughs> on stage. So I'm 15. And we're playing Winston's. We're playing Bacchanal. I was I can't even drive yet. And, wow. and these guys are all 24, yeah. dragging me around town. Yeah. And teaching me, kid. teaching me guitar. Yeah, teaching me guitar as I'm on stage pretty much. I'm like, oh, wait, what's that chord? Watching their hands. It was surreal. I couldn't drive yet. I barely knew guitar. And I'm <laughs> writing and recording in a band. That, and we got on the radio. We got, a, we got on KGB with a, a Zeppelin cover of No Quarter. And shit was moving nice. fast. And uh, what was the name of that band? That band was called Blind Tribe. It was called Radio Silence before I joined, and then it was called Blind Tribe. And uh, and um, and they um, wanted to go to Seattle. Uh, they did go to Seattle right when I graduated uh, in '92. I was 18, and um, yeah, so that was blowing up up there. Yeah, so time. yeah, we 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 all thought LA was the devil. That's where like glam bands like Poison go and do all their heroin or whatever. Right, we all thought right. it was it was just shady and 
not the scene we wanted. And um, so, and San Diego we knew was a small fish pond. And amazingly, um, and I think this is why my parents trusted these guys so much, none of them drank or were into drugs or anything. They weren't like mm -hmm. hardcore straight edge. They just come from messed up families. So, um, so they were just not interested. So it was really interesting to mm -hmm. play these bars. And, and the owners often, like I remember Winston's clearly the owner it's like, what do you mean he's 15? You know, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and they're like, none of us drink, dude, relax. He doesn't drink, none of us drink. And the owner's like, if I see him anywhere near a beer, he's out, he's, you know, yeah. out on the street. Yeah. And they were like, do not worry, he's not interested. I really didn't drink until I was 21. I, I wasn't, and until I lived in Australia. <laughs> I learned oh, to drink nice. from them. Yeah, right. But, uh, but yeah, it was kind of a great education from these guys that were so trustworthy, trustworthy and in it for the right reasons. They were in it for the love of music. And and they made great great music. They started off kind of like U two style. We were all huge U two fans, and then it got harder and harder with the whole like Jane's Addiction kind of influence and and grunge and all that. And it became more um, Alice in Chains toward when when they got to Seattle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I nearly moved up there with them. Uh, the guitarist girlfriend had just finished college, moved to Seattle for a job, and called him saying she's pregnant. So that was them. That was what they thought God telling them that she moved to band Seattle. <laughs> Everyone else was on board. I was on the fence about it um, because I still had a girlfriend here finishing high school and I didn't want to give up surfing and I didn't want to give up uh, college or I, I ended up at Maricosta. And for some reason, I just felt like I don't want to move to Seattle and live in a barn with a bunch of dudes and work at Del Taco until we make it. I thought they're all older. They're, they're all in. I'm not sure I want to sacrifice what I, what I have here for a mate for a maybe and they'd left the door open so i um right so i said you go ahead i'm the rhythm guitarist you don't need me they begged me to go because they like writing me with me but i said we could still write i could fly up uh so they got signed within a month of getting up there oh wow they got signed yeah. and they were recording at um hearts studio with soundgarden's producer mm. wow um within months and sending me faxing me because the nineties um, paperwork to get uh, royalties on an album on songs. I'd, <laughs> the songs I'd written, written songs on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is happening? I'm 18. Uh, it just really awesome uh, loyalty from the beginning with these guys. And, um, but I ended up staying here and, uh, but I kind of skipped, I skipped over the best, the, the heart of what I wanted to get to is um, when I was 14, I very clearly remember, making a conscious choice uh, because that's sort of when you start thinking about your career path. And, and my dad was a federal prosecutor. I'm like, mm, no, I don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> you, you kind of, you're shopping for, uh, you know, you're realizing real life's coming soon. And I remember very clearly thinking, I'm not sure I want to work in Mundania. That's what I called it. You know, Mundania. Not, yeah. Mundania, the world yeah. of the mundane. <laughs> I think I want to, the everyday live like, yeah account five, accountants yeah. you know people who work with numbers and math or um yeah i don't know just just the nine to five and and all that looked very so much of the world is is people don't love their jobs and mm -hmm. there's not much magic to it not much joy to it and um and it became more and more clear to me at 14 that if there was a way for me to make a living in music i would figure it out and uh and it became more and more almost desperate, you know, and I remember looking at um, films and looking at all the um, credits at the end and looking at all the jobs just in one film in music or sound. 
right. somebody's picking right. the soundtrack. You know, who's, who gets paid to pick the soundtrack or film? That'd be an amazing job. Yeah. Fully expert, you know, boom, boom, boom. All these different things. And I remember studying them, like looking up, asking what they were. What are these different jobs on films? Because I think a lot of people don't look in the cracks enough. You yeah. know, I think fireman, policeman, lawyer, accountant, right. they're looking at the big the big macro but mm-hmm. i think it, you know just like being a pro bodyboarder it's much easier to go in the cracks than it is to compete against the pro shoreboarders or whatever right right um there's there's always an, a niche somewhere that needs to be filled and that was my that was my original plan and then um as i got more and more into audio uh, i was recording and recording my parents band they're, they're in this big band still called the california coastal communities band here in north county they still play. It's like classical music. It's and... yeah. Well, it's it's more um, show tunes and uh, and movie music. They do cl- some classical stuff too, but it's it's everything from Glenn Miller to Oklahoma to and they do like um, what's it called? Uh, it's Fourth of July, big Fourth of July concerts every year. Sometimes uh-huh. at La Jolla Cove, sometimes Rancho Santa Fe. So it's it's like uh, pops kind of more than classical. Gotcha. Cool. And and really awesome and amazing players. Um, and that was a great education. And I started recording them at 14 and then selling their CDs at the next show. So I do like basic mm-hmm. post, you know, some EQ and compression and not a little reverb or whatever. Right. Um, a little four track recorder. And it was great education because I'm doing not just recording, I'm doing live reinforcement. I'd have speakers on sticks. And it was a great way to um, get an introduction to live sound in, in a very easy way. Yeah. Like you got the whole um, process in a personal yeah. setting yeah safe you, you were in charge yeah it was your family yeah and you were like okay I and and they all figured out trusted me a lot of those musicians knew me since i was five and i knew how they were supposed to sound so they trusted me to make them sound correct you right. know i'd right. grown up around them <clears throat> and uh and same with the band i was in i knew their sound and um and i feel like that's that was a great foundation for what eventually became well that's what i was about to get to is i didn't know my job existed um, when I started, I was studying to be a, a studio engineer. There's this YouTube documentary, <clears throat> the album before Joshua Tree, um, Unforgettable Fire. It's about the making of Unforgettable Fire. I think that's what it's called. Mm. Um, and you should watch it if you I haven't seen, seen it. it. Yeah, I'm it's like a. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. that's right. It's yeah. it's like a 45 minute hour long thing. I think it's on the BBC in Ireland, Dublin, probably originally. Um, and it says it's called U2, the making of unforgettable fire, probably my favorite U2 album. And, um, it's just that much more raw than Joshua tree and all that. And that, yeah. that album, especially in that documentary, I think were the moment that I went, that's what I want to do. I want to record yeah. Irish bands and Irish castles and get paid for it. <laughs> and that hasn't happened yet, but I, um, it certainly lit a fire into my ass to, yeah. um, to, to, point my ship in that direction i said that's great and then slowly as i realized the music industry and how it works i thought wait my band is just trying to get a record deal for what to pay for studio time right that's half your budget right right just to get <laughs> so in the studio if i just get a job at a studio and backdoor the whole situation right if i can get free or cheap studio time by being the engineer slash producer now we've cut out the producer the cost of the producer cut out the cost of the engineer and hopefully cut us cut out the cost of the studio time I thought three birds with one stone if I just get good at this. Right. So that was my original strategy. I was just trying to hook up my band or whatever band I'm (laughs) with. I thought if I can do all these roles, think of the money we'd save and we either cut out the record deal completely or we can use our money more effectively. Right. 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 
So that was the that was the original plan. And it's brilliant. Uh, and it really seems like that is the way that you know modern bands now yeah. are right. forced to do it. Right. Really. Look, look at Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters and and guys like that. They they certainly they they like having the freedom and control to to do what they want. And if you look at Led Zeppelin one, that's just exactly what Jimmy Page did because he hated the studio system and how they were forcing them to do radio friendly three minute singles. And he wanted right. to create album rock, and that was why he recorded that whole thing with his own money and then shopped it around. That was the beginning of people doing it that way. Yeah. And he kicked in the door for um, album-oriented, uh, sorry. Um, like a longer format. Yeah, longer format. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Radio uh, stuff that right. was allowed to be on the radio longer than and he's, you know, he was a true, you know, writer and musician. Yeah. And he wanted complete control. He didn't want yeah. some guy telling him yeah. what he was supposed to do. Album-oriented rock, that's what it's called. Yeah, exactly. He he kicked in the door for that, for Yes and all those bands to, to be able to have, not just want to record a 12-minute song, but be able to get it on the radio or a seven-minute song, whatever, Freebird, you know, all that stuff came right. from right. Jimmy Page. I think he doesn't get enough credit. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone knows who Led Zeppelin is, but they don't understand what a genius businessman he was about it. And he leveraged the industry in a way that nobody was able to or had before because they had such great material everyone wanted them and he yeah played hardball with it and, oh you want this here's the terms yeah this is this is the only way that you're going to get this i think it's really interesting that and at that same moment when he was taking control and doing exactly what he wanted to do with his band yeah. and with his music and the rights everything the critics were just chewing him up right telling them that they were terrible they're just a yeah. you know uh blues you know Done, been there, done that, right. just rehashing it all. And yeah. they're just horrible to him. And he's just like, whatever, I yeah. don't care. And then, of course, the the public just loved it from the first note. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. lost it, whatever. And look at, look at Rush. You know, Neil Peart just passed away. And same thing with Rush. They never got any critical acclaim until much later. Rolling yeah. Stone, you know. For sure. You know, never gave them any love and all that. So, there's so much of that in the music industry. And it's and it's sad, but uh, but yeah, I think Paige doesn't get enough credit for really um, creating album-oriented rock, allowing artists um, re, re, reworking the entire industry and getting the record labels to understand that that there's a market for that, that people want that, people are interested in that. It's not just singles, and like you were saying, we were talking about earlier, standards, copying other people's material. They in the past, they wanted that guaranteed formula. Oh, that was a hit before. We'll do it again with Frank Sinatra. You right, know, right. That was the formula. Yeah, and, and Dean and, Martin will or record the same song and right. see, how, see how he Yeah, and they just kept re- recycling these things because it was safe. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Page wasn't interested in safe. And he, he leveraged it in a way no one else had. And had the balls to do it. It's it's. Right, I was right. saying to you earlier, uh, all progress relies on the unreasonable man. I think that's... George Bernard Shaw, and it's so true. You see it time and time again. It takes these these front runners to push the envelope and have the foresight and balls to do it. Yeah. That's the only way we're going to create anything new yeah. and push the boundaries, right? Because yeah. then if we just stay in the safe, safe zone, then that's exactly what happens. It's just, you know, it's the same thing in all kinds of different industries and in, um, you know, the industry that I'm in, like with, you know, clothing and products and all that kind of stuff it's the same same thing if they same go to the salesman you say hey what's sold last season what's their best bet what's gonna what's gonna sell okay well it's that same old same old that was there yeah and if if there was no 
people who are pushing the boundaries and you listen to those guys, then we'd all be wearing, you know, the same khakis yeah. and, yeah. and uh, sure. So it's like pushing the boundaries, pushing it out, making it different and fighting against it yeah. is what gives us new and originality. Yeah. It's so sad to me that it seems like the people with the most money play it the most safe. I mean, maybe that's why they have the most money, but they seem to be the least interested in progress. They want guarantees. <laughs> guarantees they want safe. Yeah. And that's perhaps why they're hoarding the wealth they are because <laughs> they're good at that. Good at being safe. Maybe at one point I want to think like they weren't like that. Right. They took risks right. and then it paid off for them. Right. And so then once you get to that point, whether it's a company, whether it's an individual, you're like, okay, I need to hold on to what I've done but, or created. So yeah, I, play it safe now. I don't think fear is ever a good place to make decisions from. No. Uh, Helen Keller, I love this Helen Keller, Keller quote. I have to put it in before I forget. Let's see if I get it right. Helen Keller, of all people, said, security is most mostly a superstition. It does not exist in the children of men nor in nature it does not exist in nature nor in the children of men that's what she said mm -hmm. outright exposure is often better than the pursuit of security that mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's often just an illusion this this building walls not bridges concept uh and and going back to what we were just talking about with uh you know the wealthiest playing at the most safe i i often wonder like you just said i just think if you Surely you have instincts, you know, that's what helps you get there. Why would you change the formula once you get successful? Why would you then change the formula of what got you there? You should have the same amount of balls, the same amount of, of prowess and hunger, whatever that is, you know, mm -hmm. you shouldn't change the, it seems counterproductive to change the formula mid game, but you don't do that in a football game mm -hmm. unless you're losing. But if you're winning, <laughs> why would you change the formula <laughs> right and that's that was black eyed peas ethos from the beginning uh it, that's why their loyalty with me was so deep uh i should get to that in a second but i i um i, I wanted to touch on going back to uh earlier the the u2 documentary and me wanting to be a studio engineer uh -huh. yeah. i thought that would be my passion i thought i was going to for better or worse i, gonna, I was going to move to la and be a studio guy for the rest of my life i didn't love mm -hmm. the idea of la but I, but I love the idea of recording bands and, and getting, getting paid to work with bands, whether it was playing and writing with them as a producer, co-writer, or just as an engineer. I, I love the process, and I wasn't sure I needed to be on stage. I liked playing, but it didn't, it didn't uh, speak to me to be on stage that much. You didn't want to be that guy, that rock star um, with the lights on you? You're I, like, eh. I, I, it needed to be with right people. And I really liked Blind Tribe, the, the band that went to Seattle. And they left the door open. And they, they got signed. They sold 40,000 records. And the wheels fell off for personal reasons later that I won't go into. But um, but so I was I was a little I was sort of thinking about moving up there. And then the wheels fell off. And I went, okay, good. I, I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think I was sort of shopping for the right chemistry of, of new people to play with. Uh, when Black Eyed Peas kind of fell in my lap uh, when I transferred up to Loyola Marymount in LA. Um, so I was going to school up there. Let's see what happened. Um, I, it's kind of a complicated story, but a friend of mine, actually Mark Bullen's son, the, the guy from T-Rex. Um, mm -hmm. oh, wow. 
His mother is Gloria Jones, who wrote Tainted Love, and his father is Mark Bolin of T-Rex fame. And his name's Roland Bolin, and he lives in L.A., and he's awesome dude and a singer-songwriter. And uh, so we were in the recording program at Loyola Marymount together, um, <clears throat> and they only accept about 12 people a year into the program. You have to apply, especially as because I transferred in, you have to... Um, you have to do a written essay and you have to submit some work and show that you have some kind of promise. They don't want to just get people. It's not like full sale or something like that at trade school, nothing against full, full sale, but where they're just taking your money. They want mm. to see that you're um, serious and, and show some promise. Mm. And I really like that. I, that's what, what sold me. And they were closest to, closest to the beach of the three <laughs> of the three schools in LA that, that had this It was between USC, Cal State, Dominguez Hills and LMU. And, um, and so I ended up there and, Got in their program, but then uh, within months of me getting in their program, I realized they had a study abroad program in Australia at LMU, and so uh, I disappeared to Australia, and that threw me back, because I went to Australia, it threw me back a year in my major, uh, which was serendipity, because I would never have met Black Hat Peas, or Roland, or to a few of the other guys in the story, if I hadn't gone to Australia, because I'd always wanted to, I'm like, what, Australia, I want to go explore yeah, that. Go that, that's out. where I learned to drink. And got better at surfing and and bought a car down there and learned to drive on the left side of the road, which I loved because you could shift with my left hand being left-handed. Anyway, so I get back from Australia. Uh, Roland had this thought the uh, night nights nightlife at LMU was was lame. So he uh, he was trying to get the on-campus action a little going. So he's like, we're gonna have an open mic night, we're gonna have a jam night with all the best musicians, and I'll invite my MC friends. And he was friends with Farside and Black Eyed Peas way back in 96 when they were nobody well far side was but black eyed peas were not started yet really they'd just come out of the ashes of their first project that that um got shelved because easy e was their uh cheerleader and he died of aids the day it was supposed to be released that oh was called God. that was called at band clan and it got shelved and very few people know about the band before black eyed peas anyway so he invited them to um freestyle at our school they loved my friend Kevin and Brian on guitar and guitar and keys. So they fired their alcoholic guitarist and, um, and, and their keyboard player and poached my friends, put them in the band. And Brian had the uh, keys to the school studio. They said, interesting, free studio time. It all comes back to free studio time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and so Brian and I started engineering at our school what became the demos this black hip he's got signed with and we were just doing it for school credit because it was fun we were doing all kinds of bands we were just looking for bands that didn't suck that we enjoyed listening to and and right. black hat piece was was great i wasn't even I, I didn't grow up around hip-hop really at all i mean some but it certainly wasn't i was a james addiction i was a rock i was a zeppelin guy yeah and yeah. these guys come in and i remember um when we started working with them, first of all, their personalities were magnetic. This is before I'd seen them live or anything. Oh no, yeah. And uh, their personalities were magnetic. Will I Am was so funny, so smart, um, but their music had something really interesting to it. It wasn't just, um, it, it wasn't boring to me. It was really interesting. And I remember thinking, if this white boy from Del Mar can get into this, this easy, these guys might go somewhere. I just remember, and I was telling all my friends, I was trying to drag my friends to shows. Once they asked me 
they asked me to start mixing uh, their live shows just at little clubs in LA, Fado Do and uh, UCLA lunch and stuff like that. It's great. Um, and uh, and then um, let's see. I want to point out here that the Black Eyed Peas at this time was a lot different than probably most of you are familiar with. Um, you know, I got a feeling and all that kind of stuff is uh, a very different version of when uh, of when they started out. I finished school and, uh, and I got a job at Paramount recording studios. Right. Oh, wow. Thanks to my friend dusk. He's, he's like, uh, I was honestly trying to take a little bit of time off after school. I was trying to lay low. I was living in Malibu sure, and I was like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna lay low. Like if I, if I don't take advantage of this, I'm going to be busy the rest of my life. I'm kind of, I, I wanted to have a little time and dusk Bennett, who just is moving back to Escondido now, um, and starting a studio there. He told me, you need to call Paramount right now. They're hiring. Um, I would, I would, um, I would take the job, but I have another year of school to finish. They, you're, you're done. Get, go get it. Oh, so, wow. I, so I called them up, interviewed. They hired me like almost on the spot. This guy's Adam and Mike over there. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm working the front desk. You start off the front desk answering phones. And then as you get either assigned um, projects or bring in your own projects, you start engineering. And as you learn the gear, because it's like massive SSL and Neve consoles in there, it looks like NASA headquarters and stuff. I oh, well, yeah. at, at school, it was like a Honda Civic essentially, and now we're driving yeah. Maseratis and whatnot, right? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> What's going yeah. on? Ooh. I don't. What do these buttons Lights. do? And, yeah. You know, it's it's a whole different game. And uh, and they, I had some great guys mentoring me over there. And um, and about a month in, I think here I am working the front desk, and I've done some little projects here and there in the studio, but not much. And um. Black Eyed Peas come into my bosses. I didn't know they'd been signed. And they come into my bosses when I'm not there and say, we got a record deal now and uh, we want to record here and we want to use Dave. And my bosses are like... But they didn't know that you had gotten the they, job they'd heard, they'd heard I'd gotten well, the job they there. They heard that you were... But, uh, but like they, they hadn't... I think it all happened so fast. They just came in. I don't know. I, I feel like the way that it happened was really funny. So my bosses uh, said, that was great. You want to record here. But are you sure you want you want to use Dave? You you don't you don't want Dave. You want a guy with gold records on the wall. You want like a real producer. You want someone with a track record. Well, let us give you a, a real a real guy. And they looked at my bosses like they were crazy and said, "No, if, if we don't get Dave, we don't record here." Wow. And right. <laughs> and my bosses were so confused. Like, well, you know what? Yeah. Who is and, this guy? And and, anyway. and and it's what I was saying earlier. They said we have the team. We the demos that got us signed are how we want to sound and we don't mm -hmm. want to mess with the formula. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have Dave, we don't do it here. Wow. And we might take Dave somewhere else. 
Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Loyalty from the beginning. It was really that surreal. crazy. And um, I, I can't say enough good things about those guys. And, and it just, you know, I had no expectations of that in LA. I, I thought the opposite, that everyone's a shark and everyone's stabbing each other in the back, especially in the music industry. So so refreshing to see any loyalty or 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 genuine behavior at all. You know, my own bosses are selling me out, you know? And <laughs> so, so to have Black Hat Peas and that kind of loyalty with unbeknownst to me, I find out the next day that this all goes down and my bosses, <laughs> my bosses explain it to me and they go, yeah, they came in asking for you. I don't know why. <laughs> and, and, um, and, uh, they said, no pressure. Just don't F it up. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Like, you're out. You might be fired if you lose, if you blow this project, because this is, this is serious money. And, um, we tried to talk them into a ringer and they didn't want it. So you better step up. And I wasn't worried because me and Brian, the keyboard player had worked together already. It was really just learning the the, the newer gear, but I knew we could do it. We could do it at our pace. It wouldn't be in the deep end of a pool with, um, guys that were way uh, out, outclassing me. We'd all be learning together and there were people there to, to help us. So it was a great kind of symbiotic thing and a great trust from the beginning, um, despite my bosses pressuring me. But it was, you know, you need a little bit of that yeah, you fire. You understand. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I get it. And uh, <laughs> they're, they're businessmen. And, um, and yeah, so that went really well. We did the first record there and uh, and during that time we were doing more and more shows just little shows to kind of they're testing out the new songs testing out material doing little clubs and it was so funny i couldn't get like i was living in malibu still and i couldn't get hardly any of my pepperdine my white friends to come to these shows in like south central in the hood they were so terrified <laughs> and it wasn't a world i grew up around but for whatever reason i was never i was never that worried and um and maybe because i was friends with them i don't know and i remember my friend bobby Bobby, I'm going to make you famous. Bobby comes. I, I bring him. I drag him out from Malibu, and we're at uh, we're at Fado Do in, in South Central, and he's kind of terrified. <laughs> and then we're backstage, and uh, and and I introduce him to Black Eyed Peas, and and Bobby asks, um, "Well, I am." He goes, uh, "Dude, I don't, I don't see any white people around here. Am I going to get stabbed?" And Will I am goes, <laughs> "Dude, no, it's L.A. You're not going to get stabbed. You're going to get shot." <laughs> <laughs> just a mess of swim. but that's that's the yeah. kind of humor will yeah. has like he he's so fast and disarming and just doesn't let you you know be terrified yeah. um but that said i should tell a really sweet story about will i am because he he has his own fears he hates flying mm-hmm. he, he's mm-hmm. and and he's not worried about drive-bys he's not worried about being stabbed but he's, he's terrified of planes and i remember when we started um, they would be in first when they got signed, you know, they would be in first class, the rest of us not. And before the plane would take off, he would get up from first class, walk back to find me in seat 44 F and, uh, you know, somebody be in the aisle and he'd squeeze in next to them, squeeze in the middle seat next to me. And, uh, and he would hold my hand and call his grandmother and pray, shut his eyes, and pray with his grandmother on the phone to bless the flight. And you know, if I don't make it, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, wow. and then he, he keeps his eyes shut as the plane would take off. 
And as the plane would take off, I could feel he has these claws, he has these fingernails, and his hand would squeeze into mine harder and harder and harder as we take off. I could feel his fear. And I'm scared of heights, ironically, but I'm, I've always loved flying. And he, I think he loves, he loved my energy, my fearlessness. I'm always excited to fly. I love looking at the view. I was checking the surf or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, he likes my adventurous side and he could tell that uh, I wasn't scared of that. And so I think he loved, it was calming to him to, um, to do that. And he would do that. I remember the first two years, almost every flight, he would come back. And as he got more famous, it would be more surreal for whoever was around me. They're like, what is going on? Yeah, what's going on? What is happening? And he would dig his claws into my hand and I have these serious red marks in my hand um, once we got in the air. And then once we got to 30,000 feet or whatever, you know, whenever you're allowed to get up and walk away, he would open his eyes, thank me, squeeze out of the row and go back to first class. Wow. And the whole plane would be looking at him like, what was that about? But I thought it was really sweet that he would pray with his grandmother and he's, um, you know, acknowledging his, his fear and, and working through it. And I saw him recently. Uh, and I asked him, I said, okay, you've, you've been doing this for 20 years now, whatever. Uh, you know, all kinds of planes, tiny planes, huge planes, hel sure. helicopters, everything, you know, it has it gotten better. And he goes, Oh no. <laughs> no. And I, I said, well, well, what is it? The, the, the takeoff, the turbulence, or the landing? And he says, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yep, God. those things. Poor guy. So he's still working through it, but I think he hides it yeah. better. But, uh, you know, it's times like that that I realize we all have our issues. We all have our fears. We all have our rational or irrational. We are all are fighting our own battles. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned so much about culture and so much about people not just from them but traveling with them 98 countries now um around the world but th the point i wanted to get to is just that i thought i was going to be a studio engineer and then they asked me to be uh, mix more and more live shows and eventually i realized that's where my passion was uh, mm. because I, I no one wants to hear the same song for f a month you know right. the same three right. minute song when you're in the studio it can be really harrowing especially if you don't love the music i liked what they were doing but especially sure. a project i was doing some projects that i didn't like you know imagine yeah. listening to <laughs> millie vanilli a hundred times or whatever you know <laughs> for example but sure. um but uh you know and, and then it's just never done too some people like that perfectionists right. want the time to perfect it i realized i loved live sound because it was without a net because you can only do it once you have to get it right and i realized the procrastinator in me works best under pressure Right. <laughs> I can't now, put it off. It's got to happen right now. And I realized it's got to be perfect. I realized that I was I was suited for the job in a, uh, a situation that most studio engineers are terrified of because they don't have all day and they don't have a safety net. That's exactly why I loved it. I said, "Well, I know when I'm done." Uh, back then, I would yeah. start at four and be done by a ten or something like that. Depends. Like on real on real tour, you're doing eighteen hour days, but with them starting especially when you're the opening act you're doing a you know four hour work day or whatever and i realized i was making more in a four hour work day having fun going out and actually seeing humans and girls again or whatever when i was a paramount it was 100 hour weeks it was 18 hour days and um and mm -hmm. endless songs and i was making more in a four hour work day with black eyed peas live than i would in an 18 hour work day with them in the studio so between the monotony and uh and the pay back then, at least I would have, I would have made more as I got, as I went along, but also um, I shouldn't uh, gloss over 
everyone asks me about, um, you know, hearing loss and stuff like that. You know, yeah, do you do anything? That's a pretty yeah. To which I always say, what? <laughs> but I, re- I remind everyone <laughs> that's something you've learned. That's one of the first things you learn in sound school is how to be careful about your hearing, mm-hmm. not just with earplugs and stuff like that, but when you go to shows or when you are mixing yourself or mixing the studio, mm-hmm. some of the best mixes in the world, I think are made at very low volumes. Uh, every time I do TV shows, I watched like uh, for years, David Letterman's guy. He's now Stephen Colbert's guy um, mixes the bands for those guys. Um, a lot of the New York um, TV, especially TV engineers, they'll mix very, very low volume, like mm-hmm. 85 dB or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's 80. Um, and you get great mixes out of that. I think you get the, I think mixing loud uh, in a studio and even even live can be disconcerting. You, you're not getting a, a real representation of the mix. And if you know what the Fletcher Munson curve is, you're getting a warped sense of the extreme lows and highs. Um, not to mention room acoustics. You get more room acoustics as you turn up um, both in live sound and the studio. So, so yeah, there's, um, there's that in, in the studio, but also live. Um, my point being with Black Eyed Peas, no offense to Will I Am, but he likes it crazy loud in the studio. He likes it crazy loud all the time, but mm. in the studio it would be like at least 110 dB, 115, 120. He would number the number of um, NS10 woofers that he would blow in the, the, the speakers, <laughs> number 113, you know, and 18 hours a day of that, right? That's going to take a toll on your hearing. Yeah. And once, yeah. so once we start doing live and I'm in control of how loud it is, He's not out there with me. He wishes he was, but, you know. Um, and I did get to 141 dB with him in France once. We were doing Stade de France. Three nights sold out, 80,000 people at Stade de France. And we had um, the hugest Claire audio rig I've ever seen in my life. And Will's, we're doing sound check for Will's DJ set. And he's in the middle of the uh, stadium. So he could actually hear how loud it is and he's we're probably started like 110 db and he's just going like this like this and i'm pushing up and up and i have a picture of 141 db none of us have hearing production 141 that doesn't even sound real and we only stopped he only stopped because three of the subs burst into flame under the stage <laughs> <laughs> and i apologize it actually just went oh, and just burst into yeah, flame. Yeah, Sorry, on fire and the sound guys are running there with um <laughs> fire extinguishers and my mate Jeremiah had to um, recone all speakers, rebuild all speakers. Um, and I'm apologizing. Sorry, sorry. And they go, no, you're doing your job. He said he, said he wanted more. But, uh, but I, I like to remind people that um, hearing loss isn't purely a function of volume. It's, it's mm-hmm. over time. And if I'm doing an hour show with the band or an hour and a half show at 105, that's much better than doing an 18 hour day at 105 mm-hmm. or 110 or 115. And that's what the studio was for me at least. So that was my way of saving my hearing was to going in, in the live going sound. Live, yeah. Ironically, nobody understands mm-hmm. that, but that was my way of saving my hearing because I decide how loud sound check is and I decide how loud the show is. And there are pop acts that I do currently, I'm not going to name names, where the management pushes to mix it louder and louder and louder. And I remind them, because they're my age, usually the management. And I say, look, do you see the 15 year old girl standing three feet from that speaker? We're men in our forties. First of all, girls, women hear differently than men. And especially, uh, yeah, women hear uh, higher frequencies 
more clearly than men. There, it changes uh, um, with age and all that. But um, all of us lose our, our high end as we get older, especially out of our teens. But I always remind them, I say, that 15-year-old girl might want to keep her hearing a couple more years. Yeah. Before you tell me to turn it any louder, go stand next to her. Go stand three feet from that speaker and then come back and tell me it's not loud enough. Yeah. Because I refuse to mix for the people at the back of the room. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think it's fair, especially to um, young kids and especially young girls. And I always try to mix for my crowd. If your crowd is a bunch of drunk bikers that are our age, then I'm going to go for it. If it's a motorhead crowd, you know, then whatever, Metallica, bring it. Right, if they right. first of all have the hearing loss already, it doesn't matter. And <laughs> if they're drinking, it's, you know, it totally changes your hearing. If they're yeah. stoned, if they're, you know, all that stuff contributes. Um, that makes sense too, because you got the people in the front are the people who paid the yeah, high price for yeah, the ticket too. Yeah. And so if you're just blowing them out yeah. and playing yeah, to the back, exactly. then that doesn't, that doesn't I, make any sense. I think that's what you're doing. It's like being a chef. You're cooking for people you don't know the best you can. How spicy do they want it? You know, oh, they'd like a new food. I don't know. Maybe let's <laughs> make this a two, you know, and that's what yeah. you're doing. And people don't understand a lot of studio guys. And studio musicians, musicians in general, I feel like some of them get in, some don't, but they really don't understand how much we are modifying what was done in the studio um, based on the live environment, based on not just what the musicians are doing, how hungover they are playing on their A game or not. You know, if someone breaks a string or is out of tune vocally or on guitar, I'm going to, a part, a lot of what I, what I, what I do is smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, I'll, I'll duck something until that guitar is in tune. I'll duck, I'll push the other guitar to distract you. I'll push, put something over here to distract you so you don't hear their mistakes. Uh, Musicians like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're doing, and I'm not talking about auto tune. That's a different thing, but I'm yeah, just saying, sure. if the drummer breaks the snare, then I'll turn up the snare on the track a little more until his uh, replacement snare is in place. There's a lot of things like that that happen on the fly that people have no idea about and they shouldn't because right. our job is to make you look over here while we're fixing this over here sonically. Yeah. It's a smoke and mirrors. And, and yeah. most people don't have any idea how how much the car is on two wheels, how much how much <laughs> duct tape, virtual duct tape there is. Yeah. And I'm not even talking about uh, cheating, you know, auto-tune and stuff like that. I'm just talking about uh, stuff that's done on the fly, stuff that was done in the 70s and 80s before even the technology caught up. Caught up. But so many people think there's a lot of um, faking in in live um, mm-hmm. production these days. <clears throat> but Because of the technology? Because of the technology. And, right, and right. this goes into something else I, I should talk about where, um, especially in the pop world I'm in now, a lot of the management, because their job is to mitigate risk, you know, they want guaranteed quality every time, and they don't always think they can trust the musicians, not not necessarily to play the parts, but to sound like the record. Right, right. Because they know that the tracks, the playback tracks, are the record, are exactly the record sounds. Mm-hmm. And live is sometimes compromised versions of that. You know, the, 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 right. the drum kit on the record could be completely... Um, synthesized or whatever and and you don't want any live drums mixed in there so to speak but i fight tooth and nail with with my pop overlords because i come from a classical background and i think if you see it you should hear it and if you hear it you should see it right right i get what you mean I, I, yeah. you've been to pop shows yeah. where you hear a guitar but you don't see it on stage or whatever or a vocal you know i think right, you right. should come as close as possible to it sounding like it looks and looking like it sounds. Mm-hmm. It's not always possible, but right. you should at least try. 
And so I refuse. Well, I, I feel like when you go to a show, if it's a little bit different, it's better. Exactly. It's enhanced. Exactly. That's the next point. Because if you, yeah, if you, if you exactly. hear it exactly how it is on the record, then it's kind of like, well, you could have stayed home. I hear. You yeah, could have stayed home. home. Yeah. Yeah. Watch it on YouTube I, I argue that endlessly yeah. with everyone. And, and uh, Gene Simmons, of all people, said it best. Uh, I was reading some book, and <laughs> Gene Simmons of Kiss said exactly what you said. He goes, I don't think that's what people are here for, for us to play the record. He says, what, what, what our job is to do is to make that record larger than life, which Kiss does better than anyone, right? With mm-hmm. the platform boots and the pyro and all that. Sure. But I love the way he looks at it is, is it, those songs should come alive. They should be stretched and dynamic and interesting. And there's nothing more boring to me than to go to a show where I feel like they're phoning it in. Right. Right. Uh, we did a show with Bob Dylan. I hate to throw him under the bus, but he was phoning it in. He's looking at his shoes. And I know, I know he's, you know, not the youngest, but it's a million dollar show. You can at least pretend to right. care. Right. You can look at your audience. You can look at your band. He's looking at his shoes the whole time and just phoning it in. Yeah. I, yeah. I hate to name names, but I feel like <laughs> well, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan yeah. and, and nothing makes me sadder. And I'll say this straight to artists when I work with them. Um, you know, I, I want to have the show be as dynamic and interesting as it possibly can be mm-hmm. interactive. And, and Black Eyed Peas really was an education in that because there's four front people vocal, vocally, mm-hmm. not just one. I go to some rock shows now and I'm, and I'm bored. I'm with just, what, they're just playing yeah. the songs. They're just playing, they're looking <laughs> at each other. And well, how do the younger artists respond to that when you talk to like the Shawn Mendes and the uh, Lizard Carr and like stuff like that? Like, Res- respond when, to what? When, you, when you're like, hey, stretch this make this larger than life kind of like they, no, they, concept yeah they they understand it i think i think sean and alessia do a do a great job of that um they've both gotten a lot better with um making the show a conversation that's what i always say to people don't make it one-sided you know uh, like in theater you're scared to break the fourth wall or whatever that's called right when they interact with the audience but in a concert you should Right. Yeah, I feel like it's absolutely. probably boring to the artist uh, if it's not a conversation, if it's not interactive. I think a lot of them are scared to do that. I've worked for some other artists who are very pedantic to count how many steps, boom, 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 to this. And then they'll turn and they'll say the same line. It was so strange to me mm-hmm. coming from Black Eyed Peas, who loves to be without a net. Well, I am loves to be on the fly and he loves to have a conversation with the audience. If he sees you at the back of the room, I, I remember we used to play tiny clubs like Belly Up. We used to do Belly Up. We did Belly Up quite a few times uh, in the late 90s and maybe 2000. And people came to those shows. But we did some East Coast runs sometimes, clubs that size, that um, there would be 20 people at, you know, 30 people. And there's one tour. It was, a, it was called If You Don't Know, You Don't Go tour sponsored by it was, by, it was like a coke promo thing where they like bottle cap or something a lot of people didn't know oh, okay uh-huh. so yeah. black eyed were being paid regardless <laughs> they're getting a flat rate per show so they didn't really mind financially that 23 people showed up right, right. um but it was 23 people you know or not even yeah it's not very motivating no yeah a lot of bands would be uh, you know struggle with that or be offended or take it wrong or whatever and i love their attitude Maybe it's because they were they were getting paid regardless. They were like, "Okay, we're going to have a party, and we're going to have a small party," and uh, and, they, and they uh, and they would they'd be like, "Willam freestyle so well." He would be asking people's names and then making freestyles out of rapping with their names and doing all this crazy stuff, bringing people on stage, and it was just a party. It was so much fun, That's and awesome. I've never seen someone so aggressively friendly 
you know, and that's what I mean by a conversation with the audience and, and going back to the belly up stories uh, with them. Let's say you're at the back of the room, uh, dragged there by your girlfriend or whatever, let's say, and you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're a motorhead fan. You're like, what, what is this? Yeah, yeah. You know, and you're, you're kind of like clearly not really in the game. Yeah. And Will would see someone like you and be like, you know, you at the bar, what's your name? Get over here, you know, and, and make you come out of your shell, make you talk. And you'd be part of the show before you knew it. And oh, he was man. so aggressively friendly and not in an obnoxious way, but he just wanted to make sure everybody was having a good time. If Especially the people in the back of the room that were looking at they weren't having a good time. He would make sure they were. And, yeah. and it was always very interactive like that. And, and he still has that element. He's still maybe not calling people out as much, but he's very interested in the conversation between the band and the audience and not losing that even in an 80,000 seat stadium, mm -hmm. very interactive. And I never lost that lesson. And I try to, uh, uh, you know, the ar other artists I work with, not everyone wants to do that, but, but I think mm -hmm. it's, it's, and I'm not saying you need to like that, but if, especially in this day of, of YouTube and people being able to see your show before they see your show, Anything you can do right, to keep right. it fresh and interesting and not look phoned in, I think, helps, right? Yeah, yeah. Some artists have that naturally. It's never the same show twice. And some artists mm -hmm. want it to be the same show twice. And I always warn them, I go, is that really what you want? I don't think people are coming for the blueprint. They're coming for something beyond, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. But uh, it, it, more than anything, I, I just feel so lucky that I stumbled into uh, – I wanted to be a studio engineer, but I stumbled into being a live guy and I seem to be suited for it. Um, both personality wise, I always get uh, scolded. People are like, you're, you're not salty enough to be a sound man. You're not grumpy enough to be a sound man. You're, 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 <laughs> you're, too, smiling you're in too time. good a mood. Yeah. And yeah. I, I don't think that's necessary. I think a lot of times that comes from a cynical place. It comes from either somebody who wanted to be a musician and didn't make it. And then they're sitting there thinking I could do that. And I always say to those guys, often I work with those other sound guys and I, and I try to diffuse it by saying, Oh, you want, you want, you, you think they're talentless hacks. You go up and try to sing and play guitar and, and remember all the words you go. Let's see you go. Right. Right. Don't, yeah, don't do that. Sure. Don't do that game. I, I can't take it when people are trying to make other people miserable because they are, it's, it's not, right. it's not, right. that doesn't, yeah, they want to rub it off. On who's that helping? Yeah. I, I try to diffuse it with humor or something when I'm working with those. Or, or get to the bottom of it. I love psychology, social psychology. So I'm always trying to figure it out. I'm like, where is this coming from? Why are you intentionally being so miserable? Because yeah. you don't need to be. And you don't, why are you intentionally making everyone around you? This episode is brought to you by GoTech 247 mobile app. It's an app to... Uh, help people in the production industry uh, find work and also for staffers to hire qualified technicians. Uh, covers everything from event services to uh, audio, video, lighting, um, photography, touring, uh, all kinds, stagehands, rigging. Uh, so I would recommend checking it out and uh, help you get some work or or if you need to hire some people for a, an event or a party, um, it can do small jobs, big jobs, and everything in between. That's GoTech 247 mobile app. 
can download it at Google Play or on the App Store at Apple and get started. So where do you see this uh, thing going uh, in the future with, um, you know, uh, copyrights and like all these things that are, that are going on in the, the music industry now? Uh, Pablo Picasso said, good artists copy, but great artists steal. Well, I'm uh, on a panel at NAMM this, uh, this weekend involved with um, a lot of experts on this subject, uh, inspired by, or should I say the, the flame was reignited by this movie, Echoes in the Canyon, which is about the, uh, the primordial soup that, that a lot of great music came out of, starting with the Birds and the Beach Boys and um, Jackson Brown and all these amazing LA artists that, that uh, became a, a hub yeah, people were just really inspired yeah. by each other. Yeah, and then and all these you know musicians yeah. were went off and did their yeah. did their thing did their thing. And Tom Petty has an excellent point in the movie where everyone was stealing from each other back then, and it wasn't really an issue, or it was it was not as much of an issue as it would be today. I, I, right. I don't remember his exact quote in the movie, but he makes a point of of saying you know the lawyers would be all over it today. And uh, and so this 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 panel at NAM is an exploration of that you know what changed and why what why has has it gone that direction what are the boundaries are there actual guidelines what's what's what constitutes stealing seven seven notes seven seconds you know with it whether it's a sample or an interpolation of of a song like. Um, like Robin Thicke with Blurred Lines and the uh, Marvin Gaye uh, song that he, they claim he stole, you know, was inspired by and stole the, the root of, uh, I can't remember the Marvin Gaye song, but there are hundreds of examples of this and lots of litigation. So Katy Perry is, um, uh, um, yeah, endless um, examples that I can't think of right now, but <laughs> sure. <laughs> I need yeah. to do my homework for this thing. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's just fascinating because I, I made the point of we were doing a conference call about it yesterday and I, I'm really interested in even going further back in history. I, there must have been rules about this even further back in medieval history or, you know, religious music. You've, um, you know, um, Jewish, Jewish songs and Christian songs 2,000, 4,000 years back. And Gregorian, Gregorian chants, I don't know if you know much about the Gregorian chants, but the church was suspicious of odd numbers. Oh. shady they didn't like the number six and they didn't like odd numbers <laughs> and um and they believed four was holy so all all the church music was in four 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 time uh, and you were only allowed to use certain notes i think gregorian chants are they're only using four or five notes uh pentatonic scale i think or something like that it's a limited limited scale and with a limited scale what's going to happen you're going to be um recycling things with limited notes right 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 and so i wonder if there were issues you know if it's in-house the church isn't really worried about uh 
stealing from themselves, I guess, but I, I just wonder with limited notes what the rules were back then with different composers inside or outside of the church. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of record of that. I don't know. I'm not an expert, but that's what I'm going to do homework on with this panel because I'm fascinated with the trajectory backwards about this because clearly things have changed in the last 50 years dramatically. But let's look at the big picture yeah. going back even further. Uh, you know, what kind of penalty was there in Judaism for stealing someone else's melody? You know, I wonder. There's lots right. of rules about everything in the yeah. in the Torah. So, I mean, you could go into the whole uh, thing with, you know, blues music and mm-hmm. where that came from and, yeah. you know, how <clears throat> artists, you know, took that and stole that from the South right. and, you know, redid it. And then it became a cultural thing. And then it's like, so there's all these, um, you know, ideas about where that music actually came from and where those instruments came from. A lot of the instruments, you know, they say came from the Middle East. A lot of the, they're rooted all the way back and they were like somehow progressed back. So there's all these things about where, where it came from. Yeah. And then, you had an era like like we were talking about in the uh, in the forties and the fifties. Like everybody just played each other songs. Yeah, you know there was yeah. a great song written, and then four or five artists would yeah would sing it and see what they could do well, with it. Well, I, th- I think I think the the reason it was like that, the reason that business model worked, is the money used to be in publishing. So if you published the right. sheet music. I think it's around the turn of the century, um, the other century, um, uh, George Gershwin, that whole era um, coming out of the, the roaring 20s and the jazz era and all that, that they were all fighting to get publishing, to, to publish songs. Um, and because once you had to publish sheet music, then other people, when people start playing your music, you're getting royalties based on, based on that. <clears throat> okay. So as has however many times it got played, right. people were playing it. That they could prove, they, I guess. Yeah. I don't paid. know if people were going around the pubs and saloons, but, um, but yeah, certainly the, the, the bigger uh, nightclubs and established places, they would have to pay for their Rhapsody in Blue or whatever it was, you know, these, these right. established pieces. The publishing was where it was at. And today that's, that's, that's a bit more tangled up. Um, there's mechanical royalties. Uh, I forget, I forget this, the breakdown of all of it, but it's, it's much more, um, convoluted, the actual breakdown of, of, um, of publishing and writing now based on, um, who wrote it and who recorded it and who performed on it and all that kind of thing. It's not just the publishing of the, of the sheet music, so to speak, that you could get uh, paid on or, or sued for or about, um, so it was, it was a much clean, more clean cut system back then. And it favored whoever wrote the song to be uh, covered as much as to people, for people to play standards as much as possible. That was, uh, whoever wrote it was into that, you know, they, they're getting paid. Yeah. And that took us right into the sixties and into Zeppelin, who was accused of doing that too. The red one says, oh, Zeppelin stole all their early work, but it, that was part of the system. That was part of the, mm-hmm. the stepping stone that got them to where they were. And I think, helped give people context them them doing these blues songs on steroids like hendrix was doing gave people context for this sound that otherwise would have been so alien to an entire generation it mm-hmm. gave people a, a reference point to understand what they were doing right right to do those songs like that mm-hmm. um yeah and so then and then we went into you know 
the like the hip hop era where they're sampling and taking direct and then right. overdubbing, and then that became made it more convoluted. Yeah, well, it, it, it was just more blatant, tricky. blatant. At least rock bands are you know playing it, but that was just blatant uh, stealing, uh, or or so it would seem. And uh, and yeah, I think I think that was the the peak of, uh, or at least the beginning of real litig- litig- litigation yeah, the in that department. Get in there and like make it uh, an easy case or something, and so yeah. then it made it more complicated. And I and I think it's no accident. I was saying this to you earlier that um, the the peak of I think you know the money and record deals was probably mid seventies to two thousand seventy five to two thousand before the internet pulled the plug out from the the big labels. Um, right around 2000 and it, it makes you wonder that seems to be right when the litigation started to peak mm-hmm. that's right when the sharks started circling and the lawyers got involved right when the money was uh ripe for the picking in that uh peak of the whole hip-hop era when the when the budgets were swelling when mc hammer was peaking you know <laughs> all that and uh so it makes you wonder that uh mm-hmm. is it is it really about the law or is it about how much money people can make as right. well? Because the, right. the lawyers I speak to always, they always uh, preface that when I try to ask about guidelines, they say, well, is it worth pursuing? You know, right. uh, you know, if you're writing a song or whatever and you're worried, Oh wait, I didn't realize I stole part of this rush song. It wasn't intentional. Don't need to worry. And most lawyers I talk to say, well, you know, if you're the, is it, not the fastest car on the road. You, you may not be, but once right. you, once you're making a couple mil, then then maybe it's um, yeah. you're gonna be in danger, and or somebody's gonna want to take yeah. your money. You're gonna be exposed. Yeah. So it's it's odd to me, being a prosecutor's son, and and having <laughs> thinking there are you know thinking there are very clear guidelines in this rule in this world. It's, it's clear to me that even. Even at the top, it's it's this amorphous, swirling, massive uh, of guidelines, especially in, in the music industry. Interpretation, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of really the beginning of what kind of took down uh, the music industry and then what made it change and the technology that we have and how things are streaming and how yeah. there's like all these sources. And you were saying Steve Jobs made yeah. all the uh, all the songs, 99 Cents, and yeah. just leveled, leveled the playing field. Yeah. Between Sean Parker and Steve Jobs, they changed the game for the music industry uh, overnight within a couple of years. Between Steve Jobs making, uh, uh, creating iTunes and making all songs 99 cents and, um, and the labels having no say in the, the, pri- the price of their music or the value of their music. It's all just chopped off. She's mowed the lawn, chopped, chopped everything the same size. It was good for some people, bad for others, but it was um, certainly that they, they they didn't like losing control. The artists and the labels losing control of their of their product, um, and and Steve Jobs sort of um, leveraged his way into that position for better or worse. He changed the world in so many ways, but I think the music industry um, is still reeling from what he did and from Sean Parker and Napster and uh, LimeWire and stuff like that, you know, um, free, free downloading and stealing of music. And it's funny because I, I was around for, and thankfully went into live right about when that happened. I'm, I, I, well, I didn't necessarily see that coming, but I went into where the money was as a, as a recording industry was falling apart. Mm-hmm. I went into live, which is what musicians were then forced to be doing. So I kind of timed it right in that sense. But um, mm-hmm. 
I endlessly argue this. You know, of course, I see. I don't think stealing music is 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 um, is right, but I have no illusions that Black Eyed Peas. How do I say this? We were playing countries that never would have been marketed to by the label. We were playing Kazakhstan, uh, Ethiopian New Year, you know, crazy places off the map that Interscope never would have thought to market to. Without the internet leaking all this stuff, they would never would have had the free marketing and exposure that they did. And that's the argument no one ever, ever makes. You know, back in our day, we had cassettes and everyone was copying each other's cassettes. Right. When when I was young, you know, I was copying all my sister's U2 albums onto cassettes and listening on my bike, riding everywhere until I was 15 or 16 and could afford to buy them. And then I did buy all the U2 albums myself. But until then, I'm bootlegging everything. And that's the metaphor I always use for people. I, I say for every album bought, there's a bootleg copy going somewhere that's um you, you can't act like every album bootlegged is a sale lost sometimes that bootleg copy especially look the rodriguez story in south africa for example um searching for sugarman you know i mean bootleg copies of that album must have been out there that's insane marketing that then creates these fans especially when it creates this mystique mm. you have a fan base then from this grenade that exploded that comes, they come back and, and collect on. And artists and labels don't like to talk about that, do they? They don't like to talk yeah, about like the, the, the power, the marketing power of bootlegs and things like that. And mm -hmm. how, and my argument always is people are often, often doing it out of necessity. When I was a kid, I didn't have the money. And a lot of these countries, they don't have the money. In South Africa, 95% of the people still don't have the money to go to a $30 concert or afford mm -hmm. the real album. So they are going to bootleg. But then once they do get the money, they probably will buy the record and right. do it legit like I did. Right. So I don't think the one-to-one -one, um, analogy makes a complete sense that, that it's, it's a sale lost. I, yeah. I don't it's buy like, that. It's almost like, you know, free marketing. It's free marketing. And it's not like that album was stolen out of, it's not like that product was taken from the customer. It's not a physical thing that was right. lost. Right. So um, it's just more of it being pushed out. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and so I think, People are going to argue with endlessly, but um, I think Black Eyed Peas in the starting in 2000, especially when all that started happening, I honestly don't think they would have been as big if they were, if it had happened in the 80s in Duran Duran's era with, I think they would have been big, but in Europe and America, you know, I don't think it would have exploded all over the world. I don't think I would have been in 98 countries. Uh, if the internet hadn't, uh, you know, absorbed the music industry like it did and democratized the music industry like it did. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's, there's going to bad sides to what's changed the music industry. And a lot of my musician friends ask my advice and I say, well, it's just the game has changed and you've got to be smarter about it. Now you, you need to be your own businessman and that's good and bad. You know, mm -hmm. before you were just handed a terrible deal by the record label and, <laughs> and at their mercy. Right. And now right. you're the captain of your ship, and a lot of people don't like that. Mm -hmm. They just want someone to hand them a check and and focus on their music. Right, right. It's a lot more work. You have when, you, you, when you're doing it yourself. You have control and more work. Yeah. Right, and you have to be you know on it and persistent and go go go. And so it's 
it tends to be a little bit of a, a deflating instead of just like, okay, we're cool. gonna we're gonna do this for you and you're gonna do that for you. Yeah. But but at the end of the day, you're gonna be able to reap the benefits. Yeah. Whereas before you couldn't But you know who I think it hurts the most is the, the true artists, the true misfits. That's what your your whole ethos <laughs> is about. The the true misfit toys. I always say that in the music industry. It's music industry is littered with left-handed and dyslexic people. I'm left-handed <laughs> and slightly dyslexic and it seems to collect them yeah. all yeah. in this industry. That's funny. I'm I'm left-handed. And all my kids are left-handed. Yeah. My my mom, my sister, like everybody in my family. Yeah. And so you know, clearly something's wired a little different than the normal yeah. person. Yeah. And uh, and I think that the true artists out there uh, suffer the worst from what's happened in the music industry because they need their hands held a bit. They, they, they're not good at business or good at um, social skills always. They're good at making great art and sometimes not much else. I mean, look, R Brian Wilson locked himself in a room for 10 years or whatever, recluse, you know, mm -hmm. like they often are overwhelmed by the real world. Vincent Van Gogh had, they think, over 23 undiagnosed mental issues. He made Starry Starry Night in an insane asylum. You know, he sold one piece of art in his... 10 years as an artist. He only started at 27, died at 37 or something like that. I think the true artists are underappreciated in their lifetimes and suffer the most uh, if they don't have friends, family, or someone they can trust to help them with the business side of things. And that's where I've, especially in my career now, try to really be a mentor or a guide, guide, guider of, of people of, of, uh, who need the help the most, especially those true artists, the people you see that make amazing art effortlessly but they struggled to tie their shoes like they say einstein struggled to tie his shoes or whatever you know mm -hmm. a lot of the, the most talented people are the most misfit, misfit toys and often have a complex because of it because they were mocked when they're young or in school or whatever so it takes right. them years to get over those insecurities or whatever so we don't take care of our artists like we could or should and that's something i try to get better at because i i understand that enough i'm a, i'm enough of an artist to see that and that's what i was uh, couldn't go back to earlier. I think coming from a musical background, more so than a lot of my engineer counterparts, there's a lot of sound men are, out there that come at it from an, an electrical engineering side, you know, a mathematical side, you know, people who like to design and build systems, so to speak. Nothing against that. Right. That's not my strength. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, more like a scientist. Yeah, yeah, the more scientist type, exactly. Which I could have studied, but that's not my strength, that's not my passion. I understand that stuff intuitively, <clears throat> uh, but my passion is music, and I come at sound from a musical standpoint. My mentor, <clears throat> this guy John Ostrin, I, 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 one of my favorite sound men, and he has this quote I love, and he says, music should be a physical experience. You should feel it. And he doesn't mean you have to knock your audience back. He means the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Don't lose the forest for the trees. Don't analyze, overanalyze stuff. Don't look at the scope too much. Don't look at this. Make sure it feels right, like mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. Make sure it feels right. Mm -hmm. And I never forgot that. He's one of my favorite uh, sound guys. He's John Legend's modern engineer. And he was with Van Halen for years, Toto for years, all these amazing bands. In it. Wango Wango for years, all these amazing bands in the 80s and 90s. And when we toured, he just had stories for days and so much knowledge about audio, but especially uh, just little things like that, that I, th I think about when I'm mixing. 
because it's so easy. It, you can get very um, left-brained about it. You can get like anything. You get over-analytical and, and lose the forest for the trees. And so I always try to take mm-hmm. a step back. What are we doing here? How, how spicy is this? What, what, what are we? Yeah, are, how does are this they, feel? Are they going to like yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 an interesting. Uh, it's 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 a beautiful collision of art and science, and that's what I love. I love that it uses both sides of my brain, both skill sets, and what I was going to say a minute ago is, I think. I speak engineer and musician, and that's something that um, is invaluable in my field. And you get a lot of people that don't. Right, or and you one get, or the other. And I think that's often the problem with musicians and sound men, and salty sound men especially. Absolutely. The artist is like, well, it sounds hairy to me. And then, you know, the it's like, what does that sound mean? man's like, oh, hairy, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And you have to understand what yeah, people you, want. It's the classic scenario of like the artist, you know, up on the stage and the sound guy in the back. Yeah. And they're just like, not uh, connecting at yeah, all. Yeah. They're like speaking different languages and they're it's like, he's an idiot. And he's yeah. an idiot. It's, <laughs> it's, it's often a left brain, right brain thing or just, or egos or whatever. But uh, yeah. I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by psychology. So I, I love, even, at, even in a tense moment, I'm trying to pick apart the, you know, psychology. Of it. I'm fascinated yeah. with where stuff is coming from. Why is this person acting like that mm-hmm. you know and as you get to know people you start to understand why mm-hmm. and hopefully you can diffuse it or redirect the fire hose at least you know in a productive way right right and diffuse the whole situation yeah <clears throat> but there's there's so much psychology that's what I, I learned a lot in school they they kept drilling into us this is making records especially being in the studio you're, you're you know you're forced to be around the same people for 18 hours a day, 100 hours a week, and in a touring too. You're in a tour bus. You're living with each other on a sure. little tiny RV and flying in the plane. And you're, you're on top of each other a lot. And they kept drilling into us in school. You really need to understand psychology. You really need to understand people and um, not just what makes them tick and what pisses them off, but how to anticipate their needs. You know, mm-hmm. because that's that's part of the gig. That's part of the job is mm-hmm. to read their mind to anticipate what they want before they have to ask for it. You're going to always have a job if you can do that. Like anything, I guess, right? Like being a good waiter or something. You're, you're oh, your drink isn't full. I need to, boom. But not in a butler sense, in, in an artistic sense. Mm-hmm. What what will feed this artist's uh, creativity? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. You know? It's a, it's, a, huh, it's, a, it's a great job. All right. I want to thank Dave Haynes for coming in and talking about music and inspiration and all the things. You anybody you want to thank? Yeah, I, th- I really think I should thank my parents first. Um, like I said, both classical musicians. My dad plays French horn. My mom's the overachiever. She plays piano, flute, piccolo, English horn, and oboe. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, and if I'm not mistaken, oboe and French horn are two of the hardest instruments to play. So they're they, they're gluttonies. Uh, what's that called? Glutton for punishment, whatever. Mm, yeah. So um, then my grandmother, uh, Wilma, who's 100, 103, about to be 104. She was a cellist her entire life. Um, and her husband, my grandpa, uh, put himself through college playing ragtime piano. And then eventually, once she learned cello and was in orchestras, he wanted to be involved with her, which was really sweet. So he learned 
percussion and timpani and xylophone and vibes and played all that stuff, triangle, all that stuff for orchestras to be involved with her in her life. So there's a lot of music in my family. I was always surrounded by it. And, um, and clearly that's where the passion and maybe some of the talent came from. Well, I got uh, to see your dad play some French horn. Oh yeah. Uh, so not that long ago. So I tricked my dad into playing with uh, Alessia Cara with us on tour this summer. We were opening for Sean Mendez. Did the uh, what I call the San Diego Sports Arena, the Pachanga yeah. Center. I think it's called now, right? Yeah. Which is actually where I saw my first concert ever in '87. My first real concert, I, I call it um, Journey. It's my first real concert. My sister took me to, and um, and it was the last tour with Steve Perry. So that was amazing. Nothing against Arnell, the new guy. I love him, but it was great to see the original Journey lineup. So I blame journey and you too for tricking me into this whole industry because i remember being uh in seventh grade or whatever when i saw journey and being like this is what i want to do i don't know what this is but this is amazing and uh <laughs> this looks way better than the real world and i remember looking at the sound man i remember looking at the guy mixing in the middle of the room then and 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 all the people down there and going what are they doing what are they up to there i remember taking note of it and everything about it it kind of registered with me but uh where was I? Oh, yeah. Also, I want to thank Miracosta College, especially Don and Dave McGill, genius twin brothers, hysterical and so smart. It's like having two Frank Zappas for teachers back in the day. Uh, they're both um, Berkeley graduates, uh, Berkeley, California, Berkeley, not Berkeley School of Music. And um, and Steve Schultz uh, was the live sound guy. He's great, too. <clears throat> uh, it was a great complimentary team there at Miracosta. And then Loyola Marymount as well. Once I got up there, Kevin Cottle and a lot of the professors there. I really went to five schools in five years. So it's confusing. If you look at my resume, <laughs> I went to Maricosta, UCSD, Loyola Marymount, Macquarie University in Australia and University of Colorado. I did the Aspen School of Music. It's a classical recording program through Colorado. So when people ask me where I went to school, I say, well, I went to five schools yeah. in five years. But I think that's part of why I have such a broad background both classical and pop and rock and live and studio and all that, because I just wanted to sink my teeth into as much as I could and learn as much as I could and figure out what fit me, what suited me mm. too. So that's why my, my thank you list is a little long here, but, uh, but I really have to give credit, I think to my family, not just for supporting me, but for guiding me uh, intrinsically on this journey and, and reading my, grandfather's 88 page life story i really see where it came from i go oh he was just like me at 16 he he was led blown by the same winds he went uh -huh. on to be a great um engineer air conditioning control system specialist i have a lot of engineers and lawyers in my family but they're all musicians as well uh, yeah. and so there's kind of that left brain left brain right brain thing through our through our history mm -hmm. yeah that's awesome well I, <clears throat> thank you for coming out and uh sitting with us and also want to thank uh go tech 247 uh for uh helping us out and uh getting our programming on if you um can subscribe to the podcast and uh so you can see all the new uh podcasts when they come up and i want to thank you again dave for uh for coming out Appreciate thank you it. thank all you right. we'll see you next time yeah